The rest of us, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7, so if you have a Bible with you, feel free to turn there. Before I get there, I'd like to just give you a a brief update and a little bit of a just a little bit of a vision of, of where, where the family of churches is going, uh, Soma, and why we're going there. Uh, we, are, we are one of 80 Soma churches worldwide. And so it's good to know uh, that the people that we are with and, and where God is calling us as a group. Uh, last week, immediately after the service, we had a little bit of an emotional meeting. Uh, the system... The situation that uh, the Dean and the Peck families is in at the moment has a little bit of urgency. It's one of those things where you, uh, you just get to a point you realize that, uh, that the story is now bigger than, than you. And uh, the truth is that the, the fundraising situation that the Soma family of churches is in affects the Dean and the Peck family directly, and so last week we just had a, a community meeting after the service, and just let you guys know that we need your prayers, uh, we need your help, and uh, in that emotional setting, because I know it was a shock for some of you to hear what I, what I said, uh, I missed the opportunity to, to tell you guys the why. And so I'd like to tell you just a little bit of the why today, on why God has called Catherine and I, and uh, Stefan and Amanda, to this national, internet, really international work that is working with the Soma family of churches. So, uh, what the situation that we're in, the context that we're in, is the age of the nuns. And that's N O N E S. And uh, more than a third of Generation Z. More than a third of the millennials, when they are asked, what religion do you subscribe to, they say, none. And some of them are, are saying that because they're in the process of leaving denominations. Uh, some of them, and then, the, then their denomination doesn't show up on the form, so they write none. Some of them are, are leaving the faith, but, but many of them... Uh, perhaps even most of them, are simply leaving the expression of faith that their parents had raised them in. And these, this trend is continuing. Uh, in some ways, it, it, it's starting to look seismic. So I've seen in my lifetime a shift between the greatest number of people who had identified as church members in about 1988 to where we are now, where you have uh, 30 to 34% of millennials and Gen Z just saying, we don't belong to any of it. So it is significant and it is growing. But amid that, uh, there is still a deep hunger and thirst for things spiritual. There is a hunger for a deep an authentic relationship with God. There is a hunger for deep relationships with other people. And there, even among the churched people, there is a deep hunger for discipleship in, in community rather than just in a classroom. But these desires right now are not being met. There is widespread and growing loneliness 
and a deep desire for some sort of meaningful connection. So in the midst of this widespread change, confused millennials and Generation Z have been uprooting from community, from the Christian community they were brought up in, uprooting from a life of discipleship. And we're even seeing in this country, and you've experienced it over the last several years, people just picking up and moving, uprooting. And this, of course, is a global phenomenon. Uh, Just the people that we know that came into the country last year was one million. So it is a, is a, this is a global issue, and the emptiness is real, the isolation is real, the hunger is real, and especially Generation Z, Millennial, they are looking, uh, well, to quote a song, I think, from the, the 60s or the 70s, they've been looking for love in all the wrong places, um, and social media and these other substitutes just aren't filling the void. In the midst of all this, there is a profound leadership crisis in the church. As many as 40% of pastors, if they had a clear alternative, if a job popped up, they would, they would say, yes, I'm in. I'm, out. I'm in that new job. I'm out, out of leading Christian organizations. And churches, in the midst of all this, of course, are doing their best to change. Some, some churches, their approach is now is to say, okay, well, the culture is heading that way. We're going to do our best to follow. And so you'll see church after church after church abandoning long-standing convictions. Then other churches go the opposite direction and say, okay, we're going to rewind 20 years ago when this stuff was working. We're going to go back to this type of approach, and we're going to stand firm on these traditions. Uh, we're going to go back to the 90s, the 80s. We're going to go back to whenever, whenever it last worked, and we're going, to just, we're going to find our hope there. And we believe that God is asking us to rewind, but he's asking us to rewind a lot further than the 80s. We believe that God is calling us to remember dependence on the Holy Spirit, to remember there's a lot of leadership categories in the New Testament. There's a lot of leadership examples in the New Testament that we need to rediscover. So, Soma believes that God is calling the family of churches to rediscover regional teams, to rediscover regional teams that care for, equip, and even find new roles for leaders, for current leaders, and to assist these churches who are making disciples in community with well-trained missionaries. These disciples Uh, who are in these small groups that we call missional communities, that we can help them learn how to reach out to these nuns, to connect to these people who have been disconnected, to invite people to the table that have felt excluded or have been turned off by the, uh, the politics and the hypocrisy of the well-meaning but misguided church. And so, onward we go, and I see a future 
when SOMA becomes a unified network of churches that successfully welcomes all these displaced and disconnected people. I can see a future where SOMA cares for, equips, and finds new roles for men and women leaders in the church. Wisdom and courage to adapt to this ever-changing world. And I can see a future where SOMA is structured in such a way that it can scale and multiply as it is caring for leaders all over the United States and all over the world. And for years, uh, and many of you have experienced this if you've been part of SOMA for a long time, you've seen we have been trying to develop all these, all these things that we feel like God is calling us to, to be, to be story-formed, to have gospel at the center, to be, to be a people that, that understand their identity in Christ before they, they try and earn his favor, to be a people who focus on disciples making disciples or, or multiplication, and that we do that disciple-making life-on-life in community. That it's life-on-life, it's life, not a lecture. And how we contextualize everything, or we speak the language of the people that we're trying to reach. That we're not content with our current understanding, that we're trying our best day after day after day to reform or to get closer to the, the type of people that God is calling us to be that we're working together with other like-minded churches that we don't think we've got it all figured out, that we have shared leadership and that we're servant leadership, not top-down dictating, and that most of all we lean on the Holy Spirit. So our, as we've been developing this since about you know, 2000, the first Soma Church, somewhere around 2004, 2002, um, but we are then now taking this next step to multiply what we've learned over these last decades and that we multiply um, discipleship, that we identify men and women to train them how to use their gifts, that they use these gifts according to their age and their experience to form regional teams all over North America, all over the world. And that these churches then are able to reach nuns and then to strengthen churches, and then to unify whole regions. And God is blessing our efforts. From 2010 to 2023, we've gone from three churches to 80. And we have, in many ways, influenced tens of thousands of leaders through books and conferences and little things that we call SOMA schools, God has, in many ways, just ridiculously blessed and given us influence and favor in so many places. And wouldn't it be beautiful that if I, sat, if I stood back up here in 2028 and we showed pictures of how there wasn't 80 Soma churches, there was 160. And that many of those churches were full of those same, those people that had five years ago checked none on that religious affiliation box. But we need you for the next step. Isn't it interesting how God does things? In the last several months, I've, I, have, um, I have fully embraced something that I hate doing, which is raising money. Hate it. Previously hated it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to love it. And it you know, because it's, it's one of those things where you basically, you, you come up to people that you love and you say, 
I have a need. I need something. And this is how God does it. God gives some of us a call, and God gives some of us resources. And in order to make us family or more interconnected and interdependent, he gives each of us a gift and says, okay, now work together. And so I would love in my pride, in my Eastern Washington, manly, John Wayne-style American pride, get up in front of you and say, God has given me this vision, and he's also given me a huge pile of cash, and so let's go. But what God has given me is an unachievable vision without the Spirit. And what he has given me is not nearly as much cash as I need to build that team. And so for the last several months, we've just asked, we've asked people that, um, that have a lot of resources to give, and we'd say, and we've asked them to give, and, and many of them have said yes. I mean, over the last several months, we've raised $80,000 towards my, my per, I've raised $80,000 towards my $200,000 goal. And I need to, to find the rest. And I need to find the rest between now and the end of March. And so what we've done is we've kind of simplified it in a sense of what we're looking for now is 100 people that will give $100 a month. And I know it's a sacrifice. And I know many of you have a, a long list of things, that uh, a long list of bills and and desires and interests, so it's not a, I realize it's not a small ask, but would you please pray to the God who has given you all of your money? To the God who has given you all of your money and said to you, steward this for my kingdom. Would you please pray to him and say, God, do you want me to support this work? I need your help. And if you want to give, it is super easy to go. We go you just go to wearesoma.com. And there's a give option. And then you can go in there and you can put in $100. And then you can pick, make this reoccurring. And then you go down and you, there's a fund called Extend Paul Dean. And then you hit... Submit, and then it'll take $100 out of whatever account you tell it to every month. I asked last week at the meeting, and uh, just praising God, there were 10 of you that said, yep, I'm in. So all we need is 90 more. Would you join me in prayer? Uh, Father, you've called us, you've called the Dean and Peck family to do this work, to organize this work. And, uh, and Father, right now, I don't see a path to get there. So I ask that you would provide. I ask with full confidence because when I think back on the 25 years plus of ministry, uh, you've always provided for when you've called me. So, Father, please provide for the sake of those nuns 
for the sake of those pastors that I talk to when I go to to Detroit and Huntsville and Texas and L.A. and Seattle and Boston and Toronto and Victoria. And Father, I just, for, this, for their sake, so that we can encourage them and strengthen them and equip them, would you provide? And Father, I just pray that uh, if there's someone here today that's, that's supposed to be on that, this financial team, I just pray you would nudge them. And Father, I just ask that you give us success for the sake of those that you've called us to help. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, back to our study on Romans. So Romans chapter 7, pretty crazy, pretty crazy little passage. The Apostle Paul was trained as a Pharisee. So he was trained to love the law. If you think about Psalms, you think about King David saying things like, I love your law, I meditate on it day and night. It's a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. Passages like this are shocking. And they illustrate the weakness of the law. Or maybe more specifically, the weakness of the people who God asks to keep the law. We are weak, sin is powerful, and the consequences are lethal. So the question is for us, how do we conquer sin in our lives? And brothers and sisters, Americans, and those of you who have immigrated here, um, Americans don't take sin very seriously anymore. But I would say that something is absolutely historically incontrovertible is that sin is destructive. And sometimes, you know, the, 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 the quick stuff we get, like, you know, fentanyl, run one, one wrong pill, you're dead. Um, there's some of that in sin, no doubt about it. I mean, we're going to hit the 10 suggestions today, so you'll see it. But it is, and I just say suggestions because that's how we see it. But some of these, some of the sin that absolutely has us in chains is long-term enough that we don't see it. It's not even long-term for some of you in your lifetime. It's civilization-destroying sin, and sometimes it takes hundreds of years to fully bear fruit. But believe it or not, see it or not, feel it or not, it kills us. So how do we, how do we make an argument for this? And he'll start off in verse 14. He just says, I am all too human. Which means I am fleshly. Which means I am a slave to my desires. Sin is my master. And this is our reality. And this is, he is speaking from a Jewish Pharisee point of view. So this is not someone who is undisciplined. This is someone who is so disciplined there is not a person in this room that could keep up.
and this is our reality, is that we are dominated by our flesh, our physical desires that have actually been created by God to add to our enjoyment. It is integral to who we are. But this flesh that should be something that is created and should be in a, in a certain lane takes over and rules us. And rules us in such a way that we, what starts off as interesting, fun, exciting, ends up being deadly. So Paul basically says, without intervention, we are, we are lost. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is that intervention. He guides us to a renewed mind, and you'll see this later in Romans. And this re- renewed mind teaches believers how to present their bodies not to self-service, but to serve the larger body, the body of Christ, the soma. And this mind, this renewed mind, is no longer self-centered, but Christ-centered. And when the, Holy, when the Spirit is leading that mind, it teaches believers how to present their bodies, how to be, no, how to be Christ-centered, how to be devoted to the greater good of God's purposes. And so we become no longer self-centered, tribe-centered, subgroup-centered, group-centered, but rather centered on the will of God. So here we go. Romans 7, this fits in this larger narrative. And Paul is going to speak in the present tense, so we can just, just similar to how a historian would speak in the present tense in order to show you his in a sense, the urgency of what he's talking about. So the trouble, Romans 7, verse 14 through 20. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. So point one, the trouble with me, the trouble with me. We just can't keep the basics. We just have to admit that we struggle to follow even the basics of the law. Are you with me on this? You're tracking with me on this. Can anyone relate to that last little paragraph? Don't answer out loud. <laughs> this, the law is spiritual and good, and we are weak. I so relate to that verse, the disciples in the garden. And, they, and Jesus just asked them to do one thing, pray. 
And he comes back, and they're asleep. Comes back, they're asleep. Comes back, they're asleep. And he's like, the, oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ten Commandments. Ten suggestions is what we see it, but it is commandments, and God is serious about it. And he's not just serious about it because it's a test. He's serious about it because this really relates to our life. So he starts off, no other gods before me. Then he says, no idols. Don't make any idols. Sorry, I'm yelling. (laughs) Don't misuse God's name. Observe the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And your dad. Don't murder anyone. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't testify falsely. And don't covet. And then beautifully, he just goes through a list of things. For example, don't covet your neighbor's stuff, your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's whatever. Don't wish that you had it. Woodrow Wilson, president 100 years ago, said this. He's talking about politics. He's like, you can't, laws don't convince anybody. So people are all ruled by their passions. So the best thing we can do as leaders is to keep the honorable passions in the majority. When was the last time you heard a politician, you know, his stump speech includes things like, America, you need more self-control. Hmm. Never. So we got this list of things. And how are you doing on this list? I was just, I was just going through... Some of them, like, you know, what's, let's give an, the American people a, a report card. Testify falsely. We're getting close to, to, uh, to tax filing time. Some of you have already got it done. Well done. We're getting close. How many of you would, even, would consider maybe just a little bit of a white lie that there's no way they're going to figure it out because there's just not enough of those tax agents to get just a little bit more return back? going to go from preaching to meddling right here. Adultery. How many of us make sexual decisions based on our desires rather than God's instructions? We are so messed up. I, just, I said we. We are so messed up in this country, in this regard. So, we are so far in the deep end that we're not even in the pool anymore. We are so lost. God said, holy sexuality is one man, one woman, one man, one woman committed to each other for life. That is holy sexuality. Anything else is sin. That is so countercultural. So countercultural. And God says, this is my commandment for you. Which is the easiest one on this list for you to keep? 
of all this, you look back on this list of ten, which one is the easiest one for you to keep? Just Okay, adult, okay. Don't murder. Thank you, deaconess. Praise God for you. Just, can I get an amen? Okay. This one's, believe me, this, preaching is dangerous. I just want you guys to see this. Sometimes I, I just manage to unite all of you against me. But um, murder is the easiest one on this list for me to keep currently. That's right, she's married to a cop. Okay. <laughs> so easy to get off the path. Um, you know, it's interesting about this one as I was thinking about it. This is not, a, historically speaking, this is not an easy one to keep. We've been reading through the book of Second Kings in Bible study. And it is amazing. It is so repetitive. So repetitive. King after king after king after king of Israel or Judah, they would have known the law, they would have known the Ten Commandments since the time they were this, this big. They would have been in charge of enforcing the Ten Commandments. Of the 21 kings of Israel, so this is a, this is a general, this is, this is me counting yesterday, so it's possible it's 22, it could be 20, so just general General round number, 21 kings, seven of them die due to natural causes. The rest either get a direct lightning bolt of some sort from God or get killed by a cousin or a son or an uncle or a spouse. It is murder-a-rama in Israel. Most of you speak English. Do you realize your history? You and I, the people who speak English, really descend from English kings who act exactly like the book of Second Kings. If you start off with Arthur, and you probably should, even though he's Roman, and he might not be a king, but he's the most famous king in English history. He's 5th century. He leads the English against the Saxons, who are named after their knife that they carry, a seax. And he defeats the Saxons and drives them back, and then he goes into Europe trying to help one of the Roman empires and dies there. But, but then what follows are the Saxon king after king after king after king, and they, they claim that they follow Jesus. You look at Alfred the Great, all the way through kings you can't pronounce because they use all sorts of weird Saxon letter combinations. And then it goes into uh, these Normans who are Vikings, and I'm just pointing at Vikings, just so you know. And then, and then there's just this, this back and forth, uh, and it's just murder, 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 murder. You got these guys like King John who tries to kill his dad and really tries to kill anyone who's, who's even remotely powerful around him. He's so bad that this group of nobles steps in and says, hey, we'd like you to sign this document called the Magna Carta. And, and then from then on, you have this, this disagreement between these kings and these, and these somewhat elected people that eventually they start, every time, they, every time it comes to tax season, they get together with these kings and they have a parlay. And they have that parlay so often, they eventually just call the, 
the whole group of people, the parliament, and, and then for the rest of English history, you have this, this battle back and forth between the kings and parliament, and we're getting really lost in the historical weeds, I hear you, but what I just want to tell you is whether it is the Lancasters and Yorks who eventually inspire Game of Thrones, um, or you have the, the Stuarts who write the King James Bible to the... Um, to the Hanovers, who are everybody's named George, except for this cute little queen named Victoria. But it doesn't matter if it's a king or a queen or a prime minister or a lady prime minister. The history of our people is war and murdering our cousins and our aunts and our kids and our parents. And it's just like Paul saying, you know, I know what to do. Because every single one of those kings would have claimed, other than a couple of the Vikings, would have claimed the name of Jesus. And they can't even keep the Ten Commandments. It's just, it's impossible to keep on our own. And then, you know, you come up to 100, 100 or so years ago, you, you have this group of experts that come up with something called the League of Nations, and we think that's going to end war, and of course it doesn't. It almost, it almost, I mean, road to hell paid by good intentions, it almost directly leads to World War II. And then World War II happens, and we're like, yeah, we don't ever want these, these war, these mass murder to happen again, so we create the League of Nations, and if anything, that makes things worse. But we have this beautiful thing called the nuclear deterrent that we're so frightened that if we have another war that the whole world is just going to be blown to utter pieces, that we stop, stop having major wars, we just fight through proxies, but here we are again, and all we have to say is one word, and we know that we can't quite get this murder piece out of our heart. All we have to say is Ukraine. It's just incontrovertible. We, with, on our own, cannot keep even the most basic laws. The one on the list where you and I think, yeah, we're, we're pretty good at, we got, we got do not murder covered. Um, it's actually quite common. Paul says this in, in 23, he said, I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is war with my soul, or, or literally another law that's, that's in me that, has, that is at war. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and by death? So this super tiny short point is we struggle in our weakness and our despair. We just can't figure it out. And some days it just hits us as we see the result of our sin. Like an author who was describing a Roman emperor in a fictional way, but I think pretty accurately. Starting off with the best of intentions, I managed to murder 50 men. We cannot get a hold of this. 
But then he says this beautiful thing in verse 25. He says, thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, despite all this bad news, Jesus stands ready to help us now in our struggles. But brothers and sisters, in order, I mean, it's, it's an offer to us. We still have to take it. Truthfully, you and I need a new heart and a new king. What are the implications? First things I thought of is for these implications is some of you are good at discipline, good at disciplining yourselves to follow most of these commandments. But I encourage you to forego your pride. Because if anything Scripture tells us is, is that it's possible that pride is the worst of the sins. And the second, I would say some of you feel like you are victims to your sin, to not be able to measure up. And I would encourage you to do whatever you can to kill your sin before it kills you. Before it wrecks everything. All of us need a new heart and a different king. And Paul spells it out. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our new king. And there is a really good reason why. Because us, just like Generation Z, just like the millennials, are looking for love in all the wrong places. And the Ten Commandments really spills it out beautifully. And it helps us identify our idols. Uh, God says don't have any other gods because he needs to be the priority for our love. The problem with us is that we are loving the wrong things. God tells us not to construct idols because we're not supposed to love any created thing more than our heavenly Father. Because when our hearts love and prioritize things over God and over people, all sorts of wreckage happens. When God says don't misuse his name, he's saying lots of things, but one of the things he's saying is don't misrepresent me to others. Don't despise me by misusing my name. When he says, remember the Sabbath day, he's saying to us, don't love your work more than me. When God says, honor your father and mother, he's saying many things, but one of the things he's saying is is that honor the people who are appointing you to me. When he says, do not murder, I think he's saying, don't love power more than me. When he says, do not commit adultery, he is saying to us, don't love pleasure more than me. When he says, do not steal, he is saying, don't love possessions more than me. When he says, don't lie, he's saying, love God, love me more than your own safety or your own way. And when he says, don't covet, he's telling us, 
Don't wish you had things that God hasn't given you. Love God, love your neighbor, that's the law. But brothers and sisters, it's really hard to love your neighbor if you don't have the love of God in your heart. Jesus is our Savior. And the beautiful thing, and I'm going to invite the band up, is that even though all of us fall short, God really invites us to come to him. So often when we realize just how short we fall of God's law, you know, which one, whichever one of the ten that you have a hard time with, that God repeatedly, repeatedly extends his arms to us and invites us home. I don't know how many of you have experienced just deep and profound guilt. But no matter the depth of your sin, the depth of your guilt, God continues to invite us in. Next week's sermon, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a, of a tease on next week's sermon. Paul said this, said, so now there is no condemnation. Not a little bit of condemnation. Not a little bit of regret. Not a little bit of shame. Paul says there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, remember who wrote that. A murderer. Not just a murderer. Not somebody who killed someone so that his dynasty would rule a throne. He killed the guy in charge of the widow relief program for the church of Jerusalem. I think Paul knows what shame and guilt and regret feel like. So I want to invite you today to either commit to a new king or recommit to a new king. Something funny happened to me in 1989. I I felt this, just this constant, constant call. Sometimes it was really quiet. Sometimes it got pretty loud. Just God calling me in, calling me home. Because I was raised in the church, but I was a rebel. But God kept calling me in, and I'm like, man, if I submit to Jesus, if I say, okay, God, you're my king, not me, or not whoever I'm following, then my life is going to be drudgery. Anybody else? Amen to that? When God calls you, like, yeah. I don't want to do this because I, I, I don't want whatever this, this life full of uh, rules looks like. And what was interesting was, there, I mean, there's this, this, one, this one day, this one uh, late afternoon that I, that I finally just said yes, and I meant it as far as, you know, the voice is like, will you come back to me? Will you submit? And when that answer was yes, what I expected was for there to be some sort of chains that I was agreeing to. But what was amazing was they dropped off. And the reason I stand before you today, and when I look, when I look back at my, 
the last 30 years, 30 plus years of my life since then. What's amazing is what I thought would, would be some sort of change has actually turned out to be blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. Not saying that my life has been easy. I would testify to you that the last two weeks have been profoundly difficult. But it is a, but a walk with Jesus is beautiful. He is so much of a better king than I am. He is so much of a better king than any politician or historical figure or cultural influencer could ever be. So I'll simply just testify to you that if, that if God is tugging at your heart to submit, to come back to him, to let go of one of those ten commandments, that you know something you're resisting at the moment, he is good. He is good. So as I, as I close and as the, the band sings, I just encourage you to take a moment and just ask yourself, who am I following at the moment? And if the answer isn't Jesus, repent. I just encourage you that before you come up to communion, just with, with your whole heart, just say, God, whatever you ask, I'm in. Wherever you send me, I'll go. Whatever you ask me to let go of, I'm going to let go of. I trust you more than me. For us to break free of this, these chains of sin, we have to let go of whoever we're serving if it's not Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you need a new heart and a new king. I encourage you to make that commitment today. Before you come and take a piece of this bread and dip it in wine and remember what Jesus did for you. He loves us so much. I'm glad you're with us today.